1: with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, how do we know that the New Testament documents were copied accurately? How do we know the Old Testament documents were copied accurately? And how do we know which books should be in both the Old and the New Testament? And what translations should we use? Are there better translations than others? Well, we have two guests on this program today. We'll have them in succession. We'll have Peter Gurry and John Mead talk about their brand new book, Scribes and Scripture, And our first guest is Dr. Peter Gurry. Uh, Dr. Gurry, you teach at Phoenix Seminary, and this brand new book, Scribes and Scripture, the subtitle is The Amazing Story of How We Got the Bible.
0: How did you guys get to wanting to write a book like this? That's a great question. So John teaches Old Testament, and I teach New Testament, and both of us work in this area of how we got the Bible. Particularly, we both work with manuscripts, the study of manuscripts, and then John has a real expertise in canon, and I've developed... I'll call it an armchair expertise on translation, okay? If I'm if I'm being fair, and uh, so what we've been doing for the last couple of years is doing uh, conferences and churches to help Christians understand how we got the Bible, and what we discovered in doing these was that it was a lot of information, mm-hmm. a little bit of drinking from a fire hose, right? And we thought, you know, what we need to do is put this in a book form so people can sort of take the conference with them. So what this book is, it's really the road-tested version of this question of how we got the Bible that we tested in churches, and we tried to distill the the most important information, and uh, to help Christians in particular understand and appreciate how we got the Bible. Well, let's talk about the copies of the New Testament. That's an
1: expertise for you. I know that uh, some people have suggested that there are more variants than there are words in the Mm -hmm. New Testament. Mm -hmm. I think Dr. Bart Ehrman has said that. It really scares the average Christian, Peter. Like, are you telling me that these variants, there's so many of them, more than words in the New Testament. Is that a problem?
0: Yeah. Uh, is it a problem? I don't think so. It is true. Let's start there. Right. It is statistically true. Okay, uh, I've done some work on this, and I think the best estimate we have is about half a million variants, mm-hmm. non-spelling differences in our Greek manuscripts. All right, when you say a variant,
1: okay. explain yeah. what that
0: means. Good. What is that? So it just means a difference between two manuscripts. All right. okay. You could have 500 manuscripts on one side that have reading A, and three manuscripts on the other side of reading B, that counts as one difference. Okay. Okay. So when you count those in the places where you have large amounts of data and then extrapolate from there to the whole New Testament, you get an estimate of about half a million. Mm-hmm. Now, once you go through and ask, well, what kinds of differences are there? Almost immediately, you can cut out about half of them as either nonsense reading. So not spelling differences, but nonsense, meaning, okay, for an example, if I write you an email and I spell the word the T E H. That's not an English word, is it? Mm-hmm. But you know exactly what I meant to type in. Right. Okay, that's a nonsense reading. Okay, about half of these half a million variants are of that type. We can immediately dismiss them. Okay, then you can cut down the number further by saying, well, most of them are not found in very many manuscripts, or they're not found in very good manuscripts. Okay, so we can dismiss those. To give listeners a bit of perspective, in John chapter 18. Okay. We have almost 2000 Greek copies of John 18. There are about 800 words in John 18, and we have several thousand variants in those thousands of manuscripts, okay? But if I were to ask you, okay, how many of those matter to a detailed te- in a detailed technical commentary on John, the answer would be about 6 or 7 of them. Mhm. if I said, "Well, what about what are the ones that matter to a Bible translator working in the field, say overseas?" The answer is a handful, two or three. If I were to ask you how many of them are, are so important and affect the translation that English Bible translators think that we as English Bible readers need to know about them, and so they put them in a footnote of your English Bible. The answer there is zero. Mm. So we went from thousands of variants and thousands of manuscripts mm. to none that make it into your English Bible footnote, okay? Now, I, as a professional text critic... I'm interested in lots of data. (laughs) So if you were to ask me which variants matter to me as a text critic, I'd say a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Because I learn a lot by studying even the ones that aren't that important. I learn about the kind of mistakes that scribes make. And that helps me as a scholar, okay? But if I were to say which variants matter to my mom doing her devotions in the morning, the answer is I'm not sure any of them do in John 18, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, across the whole New Testament, there are variants that do matter that mm-hmm. we could talk about, okay? Mm-hmm. But when we think about half a million variants, you need to understand the vast majority of them either are immediately ones you can dismiss as irrelevant, not original, clearly not original. And then even once you go through the, the va- what's, what's left, you still get to a tiny sliver of a number, that that really would affect translation, okay, and where scholars would continue to debate what the original text is. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah. Now, when you say this, that there are this many variants, is that... Partially due to the fact that we have so many manuscripts. It's absolutely due to that. Okay. Because if you think about okay, think about it on the far extreme. If we had one manuscript copy of the New Testament, mm-hmm. we'd have zero variants. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we'd be stuck with whatever's in that manuscript, right. wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. The fact that we have thousands of manuscripts mean we can compare them and we can begin to isolate which manuscripts are better than others. Do you see? And then we can start to narrow it down to okay, what are the most important manuscripts that we should really pay attention most to? And then we could go from there. Right Now, as you've been studying this for a while,
1: what do you surmise is the most common reason these variants creep into the text?
0: Oh, by far the most common reason is because it's hard to copy things by hand. Okay. <laughs> in other words, they're accidental mistakes. All right. Scribes, for the most part, okay, wanted to copy faithfully what was in front of them. Mm-hmm. They didn't always succeed. And mm-hmm. we have some rare exceptions where they clearly intentionally changed things. Mm-hmm. Okay, like what? What would be an example? Okay, of that? well, an example would be let take the famous ending of Mark's gospel. Yeah. Okay, that most scholars think is is not original. We're talking about the last twelve verses of Mark. Okay, they're verses nine through twenty in Mark sixteen. Okay, and most New Testament scholars think that that ending is added later. Is okay. it
1: because the earliest manuscripts don't have it? That's, That's correct. Our okay. two earliest
0: manuscripts, and, and listeners should know, 99.9% of our Greek manuscripts do have those verses. Right. But our, but it happens to be that our two earliest manuscripts don't. We also happen to have evidence from the 4th century from a church father who says all the copies he knows do not have them. Okay? okay? So you have some issues like this that are involved. Some of the early versions, the early translations of the Greek manuscripts also don't have it. Okay? So all that has to come into play. And then the bottom line is we have to ask the question, what's more likely? that somebody removed those 12 verses intentionally or that they added them intentionally. Mm-hmm. There's no accidental explanation for it. Mm-hmm. You don't mm-hmm. accidentally leave out 12 verses. <laughs> right. okay. or, or add them. Or right? add them. <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> okay. Whoops. Wow, yeah, I just okay. got creative. Okay. Uh-huh. No. So I think what's most likely happened is the scribe, the scribes at some point, maybe it was even a reader, we don't know, but is, is copying a version of Mark that, that ends very abruptly in Mark 16:8 with the women leaving the tomb and, being, and saying nothing to anyone because they're afraid mm-hmm. and says, that doesn't sound like an appropriate ending for good news. Hmm. and so based on the yeah. other gospels and acts they probably put together this alternate ending okay and at some point fairly early on by at least the second century it gets added to copies of it Mark's ends Gospel if i'm
1: on. not mistaken with the uh angel saying he has risen well okay right? so the
0: angel right before the women leave the tomb yeah. the angel says tell the go tell the disciples that jesus will meet them in galilee yeah and that never happens Okay. Without the longer Without ending. Without the longer ending. See? Okay, so it's kind of a mysterious yes. kind of so ending. So this is why scholars debate. Yeah, yeah. Has the original ending, and I like to call it the tip of the ending, really. Right. Has the tip of the ending of Mark been lost due to, due to say, d- um, destruction of the earliest mm-hmm. manuscript mm-hmm. or the earliest couple manuscripts, something like this, or did Mark intend to end at verse 8? Mm-hmm. And lots of scholars today would say they think he intended to end at verse 8, and he, he wanted to sort of end on a note that forces you as the reader to ask yourself, well, what will you do? With mm. this risen Jesus, mm-hmm. do you see? Um, and will you will you sort of say nothing to anyone in fear, mm-hmm. like the women leaving the tomb, mm-hmm. or will you preach the gospel? Mm-hmm. In what is the voice? earliest uh, document that we have uh, for Mark? The earliest one we have now, as of a few years ago, is third second or third century. Okay, okay? Um, it's a manuscript that was published, like I said, just a few years ago. You may have heard about it in the news. It was it was originally thought to be first century. So you may have oh, heard about this first century mark. Yep. Oh, all right. When it was finally published, it was dated to the second or third century and it, under quite scandalous circumstances yes. because the editor himself is thought to have been a man who tried to steal it from under the noses of his employers and sell it to the Museum of the Bible. That's a whole nother story, Frank. Wow, we probably don't have time wow, for. Wow. But uh, needless to say, this discipline is not boring. Yes, <laughs> okay. yes, yes. Uh, but In, that's the earliest, okay? He, he wanted
1: now, to write his own ending, didn't he? Apparently. <laughs>
0: It's
2: still ongoing. We okay. don't know the ending of okay, his story. Okay,
1: so so the ending of Mark occurs, uh, or the earliest manuscript from the second or third century does yep.
0: not have. It's the a fragment. Of Mark. It's not even Mark 16, but we, oh, we oh, okay. that's right. Sorry, but we do have evidence from Irenaeus in the second century, okay. who, who quotes from the longer ending. All right, from verses right from the last twelve verses. So we know it must have existed. All right, we'll be
1: back in just a couple of minutes, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking about the evidence for the early manuscripts and do we have a good copy of the new testament a lot more with dr peter Gurry right after this don't go anywhere Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. If you're low on the FM dial looking for NPR, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You will never hear this on NPR. We're talking about the scriptures. We're talking about how do we know the New Testament documents were accurately copied so we know what the original said. We'll also talk a little bit about canonization, how do we know what Bible or what book should be in the Bible, and also more about translations. We're talking right now to Dr. Peter Gurry. In the last two segments, we'll have his colleague, Dr. John Mead on. Their new book is called Scribes and Scripture, the Amazing Story of How We Got the Bible. So, Peter, before the break, we were talking about the ending of Mark. Whether or not the ending of Mark is actually in uh, Mark's gospel or not, it doesn't really have any theological uh, we don't get any new theological insights except handling snakes. That's why I don't do it. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, what, what about the story of the woman caught in adultery? Yep. Tell us about that. That's yep. often seen as, well, maybe that shouldn't be in there. Yeah, either.
0: and actually the, 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 the evidence for the, the woman caught in adultery is more difficult than for the ending of Mark. Like I told you, the, the longer ending of Mark is in 99.9% of Greek manuscripts. Okay. But when it comes to the woman caught in adultery, that story is not found in hundreds of Greek manuscripts. Mm. The first first manuscript it's found is from the fifth century, and it's still missing into the Middle Ages. Um, that. Textual issue is pretty well known even in the Middle Ages. You can find commentators in the Middle Ages discussing it, certainly in the Reformation and ever mm. since. So it's, it's fairly well known. And, it's, and I would say it's fair to say it's more beloved than the ending of Mark, isn't it? Sure, right? yeah, I, I would think so. And it sounds yeah. like a
1: story that Jesus, it sounds, sounds like a true story about it Jesus. It really does. It, it has all yeah. the
0: marks. It's an encounter with Jesus and the religious leaders mm-hmm. where, where they're arguing and they're trying to trap him, which is like mm-hmm. a classic story you have with mm-hmm. Jesus in the, in the Gospels. So many scholars would say it's probably a historical account. But it does get added to John's gospel later. So, mm. those are the two. When you asked the question earlier, you know, tell me some examples of intentional changes mm. to, to the New Testament. Those are the two big ones. And what I think is really important for listeners to know, though, is those are the only two big ones. Mm. Sometimes mm. people can hear about those two. And if they've never heard about it before, their immediate question is to go, oh my goodness, how much of the rest of the New Testament is like this? And the answer is, None of it. Mm-hmm. These are the only two variants of this size in the entire New Testament. And both of them are already marked in your English Bible. Mm-hmm. right? Neither of these are hiding. Nobody's hiding this from anybody. Mm-hmm. It's right there in your English Bible if you just read. Usually there's a note above or, or in the footnote about both of these passages. So, Peter,
1: what what is, in your estimation, the current percentage number for uh, reconstructing the original? Yeah. Uh, you know, some say... You know, 99, Nine, some yeah, right. say 97. Right. What, what
0: is it, you know? I, it's a hard thing to put a percentage on because percentage of what? Mm-hmm. What percentage of the text are we confident about? Well, it partly depends on who you ask. And maybe one way to measure it is to look at a Greek New Testament and say, how many places do modern scholars have to get? guess at what the original text is. Mm. okay This happens all the time by the way, in classical literature. Oftentimes mm. when we're dealing with classical literature, scholars are lucky to have a half dozen manuscripts to work from. right And what that means is there are plenty of places where all half dozen of those are corrupted by scribes. They're just the, in the process of transmission, mm. the original text has, has been you know lost lost yeah, yeah, yeah. or it's or hard to identify or, or whatever. When it comes to the New Testament, I'm aware of two places where scholars today guess what they think all the manuscripts are wrong and scholars think they know what the original was that's hmm. different from manuscripts. I happen to think in both places they're probably wrong okay. <laughs> that the original text isn't right. a manuscript. So maybe a way to, to put it positively to say, there are probably no places where the original text has been lost for the New Testament. The, the question is for us as scholars, is it this reading A or this reading B? So, so it's, it's not like original. we're
1: missing something. It's like we have too much of- That's it,
0: yeah. We have too much of that. That's of the, right, so some people describe it as like, it's like having a, you know, a 500 piece jigsaw puzzle and you've got 550 pieces. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them you know don't belong, but you've got to kind of try to get as much of it together so you can identify which ones don't belong and say, okay, those ones are, aren't part of this actual puzzle. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Okay. That's One way to think about it. So uh,
1: take a, a seminal book uh, in the popular world, like Misquoting Jesus yep. by Bart Ehrman. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting... First of all, what's his thesis in that
0: book? Well, I think his thesis is, in particular, that there are too many variants and too many important ones to believe the Bible is inspired and therefore inerrant. Okay, where where has he gone wrong there? I think he's gone wrong in thinking that if we have any doubt at all— okay, at any point, then we can't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. I think that's just nonsense, mm-hmm. frankly. Um, mm-hmm. uh, for example, let me give you an example. Um, I think he tends to overplay the significance of variants. So in mm-hmm. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, for example, it's one of his examples. There's a variant as to whether Jesus is called the Son of God or not in the very first verse. And he says, depending on this variant, that affects, that affects whether Mark thinks Jesus is the Son of God or not. And I think, well, by the end of chapter 1 of Mark... Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water, and the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Son. Yeah. The next people that recognize him as the son of God are the demons. Mm-hmm. Climatically in Mark's gospel, the centurion recognizes him as the son of God mm-hmm. at the cross. Mm-hmm. So really, I think the only question that's in play there in Mark 1-1, theologically, if we can put it this way, is does Mark want us to think of Jesus as the son of God from the very first verse, or does he want us to figure it out as we go? Now that's a little bit of difference in terms of how you read it, but it's not a question of A, it's not a question of whether Jesus is in actual fact the Son of God it's not even a question of whether Mark wants us to think he is. Mm -hmm. It's not even a question in my mind of whether he wants us to think that in the very first chapter. Are you with Mm -hmm. me? In other words, I don't really think there's much at stake. Mm. Although as a text critic and as a Christian, I want to know. I want to know what Mark wrote there in Mark Mm -hmm. 1-1, and I want to try to read Mark as best as I can in the way he wrote it and intended it to be read. So that's why as a text critic, I want to be careful to say textual variants do matter, but they never challenge some core belief of the Christian faith. Hmm. And including, I would put in that, including the belief in in the inspiration of the scriptures. You know, it's interesting, too, in the second edition of Misquoting
1: Jesus, that famous quote he has on page 252, where yep. he basically says he agrees with his his, his, mentor. his mentor, Bruce Metzger, that yeah. the essential story of the New Testament, the essential theological points of Christianity are contained
0: right. in the documents that we have. That's right. And, you know, all you have to really do is think about the fact that for, th- for over a thousand years— the New Testament is copied by hand, okay? Mm-hmm. And you don't have radically different Christian groups or theologies based on different manuscripts. Mm-hmm. You don't have, you know, a group over here that looks like the Mormons because their manuscripts are so corrupted. Are you are you with me? In other words, mm-hmm. the differences are so slight that no matter which one you read, I think it's fair to say, you're going if to, you, if, you, if you're decent at interpreting, you're going to come up with the Christian faith,
1: mm-hmm. Do you see?
0: So I don't think the choices that we have to make as textual critics, certainly on the New Testament side, I don't think they... They hardly ever rise to the level of core Christian belief, if mm-hmm. ever. What they do is they rise to the level of interpreting interpreting a particular verse, you know, or mm-hmm. or is it phrased this way, or is it phrased that way? And I don't want to say those things never matter, but they don't matter to the, to the level of say core Christian doctrine. Peter, what would what would your definition of inerrancy be? I would say inerrancy means that because God has inspired the Bible, mm-hmm. okay, because He has breathed into let's say the the human authors the product of what they wrote is his word. Mm -hmm. And if God can be trusted fully because of Mm -hmm. his character, then his words can be trusted fully. Mm -hmm. And so that means the Bible is inspired. I think the Bible is without error. Now, the key distinction qualification we usually make with that is something like in the original autograph. And the reason we make that is because what we're trying to say is we don't think that every accidental mistake by a scribe is inspired. Mm -hmm. Let me give you, okay, a more modern example. There's a famous copy of the King James Version, with a misprint in the Ten Commandments, where instead of "Thou shalt not commit adultery," it says "Thou shalt commit." Adultery. That's right. <laughs> right. It, it developed the nickname of the Wicked Bible. Okay. That's right. Now, how can I get a copy of that? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay. So, um, <laughs> I would not say that version of the Ten Commandments okay. is inerrant. You right, see, right? Because that printer is not inspired mm-hmm. in the way the biblical authors are, and thankfully, that's an easy mistake to correct. Mm-hmm. And that's the way a lot of these mistakes in the Greek copies are as well. They're very easy to correct. Or in other cases, there's they're just so obvious we know what was intended, or the mistake does not affect the truth claim of the text at all. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Mm -hmm. So if I have a choice between Jesus being the Son of God in Mark 1 or not being... It's not a choice between whether he is, in fact, the Son of God or not, do you see? It's a question of whether Mark tells me that in verse 1 that's right. or waits for the end of chapter 1 to tell me.
1: So do when we're saying the Bible's inerrant, ladies and gentlemen, we're not saying every copy is inerrant. We that's are right. saying that the autograph, the original, is, and that's what the science of textual criticism discovers, is that's what right. the original said. That's what we do. And so you will say, as your mentor Dan Wallace would say, that we have... Basically what the original said. Yeah.
0: Right? I think listeners should be... I, I Let me put it this way, Frank. Okay. I think probably in the 21st century, we are we are better situated than any Christians have ever been in the uh-huh. past uh-huh. on this question. We okay. have more manuscripts, earlier manuscripts, and better quality manuscripts than anybody in the past. We have less reason than ever in history to doubt the Bible on this question. Okay, good. Give us just a couple of
1: minutes on translations. Yep. What, what do you suggest our listeners use for a
0: translation and why? So... so I think the best thing you do, I always recommend, use the translation that's on the spectrum of literal to less literal. Mm -hmm. Use the one that's most literal that you can still understand Mm -hmm. because your listeners may be from a wide range. They may be new believers and they've never read the Bible before and something less literal is going to make a lot more sense to them. Mm -hmm. Something like a new living translation may be what they need. Mm -hmm. If somebody's been a Christian, they've read the Bible before, they're more comfortable with it. I recommend something more literal on the side of say ESV, NASB, that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. But I do want to stress that I think mo- all of our mainstream evangelical translations are very good. Mm. It's not a choice between good and bad, it's a choice between good and slightly better. You know, <laughs> you, maybe you could make some money by releasing the Peter Gurry translation. <laughs> huh? That's a big project. Okay. okay, well, uh-huh. here's one thing about translations people often mm-hmm. don't realize. Most English translations are revisions, not fresh translations. Because oh. it's a very big project to say, I'm gonna sit down with my Greek New Testament and my Hebrew Old Testament mm-hmm. and go from scratch. That's a huge project. Right. Tyndale, for example, the first one to put the Bible into English from the original languages does not finish the Old Testament before he is killed. Why? Not because he was bad at Hebrew, But because the Old Testament's pretty big. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Right? He didn't get around to it. That's right. So translating the Bible is a big project. I think if I were to give one takeaway, Frank, Uh on this question, it is have appreciation for the rich heritage we have of Bible translation in the English language. Mm -hmm. We are incredibly blessed. Most listeners probably think of the King James Version as the oldest. It's not. There are a half dozen at least English translations before the King James. What is the first English translation? Well, the first one ever is Wycliffe back in the 14th century. But Wycliffe's translation is from Latin, not from Greek and Hebrew. Uh Hebrew. All right. All right. Okay, so the first English translation from Greek and Hebrew is Tyndale. Okay, okay, in the 16th century. All right. Now um, we know that some people have been into King James only. Why yes. is that
1: not the uh, the
0: way to go? <clears throat> well, I'll give you one reason. Okay, yeah. I could give you a bunch, but for time, I'll give you one. The one reason is because the translators themselves were not. They very clearly c- clearly say in the preface to the reader in the mm-hmm. King James version that they did not think that their translation was sort of overturning everything that had come before them, mm. nor did they think it was the last word in mm. translation. Mm. They are very clear that they thought they were taking the best of what had come before them, and they thought people may even do better after them as well. And so that's what the use saying. of language changes, ladies and gentlemen. Of course. So that's why you have the new King James, of course. by the way. It think takes- about a word like, uh, the word "gay" and how it's right. changed in the English language, yeah, sure. right? If you find that in your King James version and read it the way we mean it today, uh-huh. you're going to confuse yourself very quickly. <laughs> that's right. uh, I like to always remind people: unicorns are in the King James version. Mm-hmm. Unicorn comes from the Latin "uni" and "cornus," which means one horned. Mm-hmm. It's probably referring to a rhinoceros in the King James version. Mm-hmm. Okay, it does not mean the mythical creature. That's right. But if you read it today, if my, you know, my 11-year-old daughter, if she sees unicorn in her Bible, guess what she's thinking about? She's thinking about My Little Pony, mm-hmm. and that's going to lead her astray. <laughs> so there are the, the King James version is a great trans- but there are good reasons to move beyond it today
1: thanks so much peter for doing this and you're thanks okay. for the book scribes and scriptures the brand new book and we're going to talk about canonization and uh also the old testament text right after the break you don't want to go anywhere you're listening to i don't have enough faith to be an atheist with me frank turk on the american family radio network our website cross examined.org we're back in just two minutes don't go anywhere back to I don't have enough faith to be an atheist with me Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network thank you so much this year for your support ladies and gentlemen as you know we're coming to the end of the year and donors of crossexamine.org have put together their funds for a $100,000 matching gift which means any money you give from now to the end of 2022 will be doubled by these donors. What a great way to double your impact. You are reaching mostly college kids and young people, high school kids through us because as you know, 100% of your donations go to ministry, 0% to buildings. When we go to a college campus or a high school campus and present, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, we don't charge students a dime. So we're trying to go to the Lions. Dan, thank you for sending us there. And of course, all the stuff that we do online as well reaches young people. Uh, Today, we've been talking about a brand new book called Scribes and Scriptures, how we really got our Bible. And now we have Dr. John Mead on with us is the co-author of that book, uh, and he's from Phoenix Seminary. John,
2: how are you? I'm great, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Oh,
1: absolutely. Now, Peter, your colleague, uh, has told us a little bit about the manuscript evidence for the New Testament, a little bit about translations. What's your expertise in, in the book here?
2: Yeah, so, well, I've taught Old Testament at Phoenix Seminary for just over 10 years now, right. and my training was in Old Testament textual criticism. Okay. So I know a little bit about Hebrew manuscripts. Uh, and I've, I've come along the way, I've come to be something of an expert on the canonization of the Bible. All right. So, good. yeah. So those are kind of my main contributions. Well, let's
1: talk a little bit. Let's start a a little bit with the Old Testament manuscripts because we talked to Peter about the New Testament manuscripts. Um, how many manuscripts of the Old Testament do we have in existence?
2: Yeah. So this is still kind of unknown. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's not as, not as nailed down as on the New Testament Mm -hmm. side. Um, I used to think we maybe had around 6,000, mm-hmm. um, but I think the most recent number honestly has us up around 30,000. That many? Manuscripts. is a lot of manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible. Wow. If you start to take all the fragments that were discovered at the Cairo Geniza, so this was a, a Geniza was a storage room of the old synagogue in Cairo, uh, some 10,000 or so biblical fragments found there. Uh, and then also the Dead Sea Scrolls, some 200 or so uh, fragments there. And then you start to put together the Masoretic Tradition proper. That's thousands of manuscripts there. Uh, the Jewish or the, um, the National Library of Israel also is up into the tens of thousands of, of manuscripts. Now, when I,
1: co- I know when it comes to Greek New Testament manuscripts, we're, we're just under 6,000 or so, right? That's right. Uh, are you saying that... Uh, the Hebrew versions of the Bible, the Old Testament, we have more than 6,000? Yeah, we have more. Wow,
2: okay. Yeah, they're not uh, not complete, right? Right. Yeah, so just like the New Testament manuscripts are not complete, but yeah. But no, the Hebrew Bible is incredibly well-preserved, but I think that's a a little-known fact. Hmm. Yeah. Now, are the Dead Sea Scrolls the oldest? They are the oldest. Okay. They are the oldest still, other than a, a, a silver amulet. Discovered at Hetef Hinnom Um that has like the ironic blessing, right? Numbers 624 yeah, to 20 the numbers f- passage yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's usually dated to seventh, sixth century BC. Uh that's the that's the earliest of anything biblical that we can look back that to. That is a
1: little metal scroll. Silver. Right? Silver. Yeah, okay. Meant yeah. Meant to be
2: worn. Uh-huh. So you know that's a that's a blessing, right? That Aaron and his sons would pronounce upon mm-hmm. the Israelites. You know, may may the God's face shine upon you, right? So so someone who wears that around, right? It's almost it's almost like the what would Jesus do kind of bracelet, you know. <laughs> we were just yeah. in the
1: Israel Museum in yeah. September and yeah. saw it there. It's yeah. prominently
2: displayed. Yeah, that's so right. that's
1: the earliest place we have anything scripture. biblical. Okay. Yes, that's right.
2: And then the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh-huh. which scholars typically date sometime somewhere between let's say two fifty BC. Mm-hmm to, say, around 115 A.D., if you put them all together.
1: Now, how is the transmission of the Old Testament? When you compare, say, the Great Isaiah Scroll mm-hmm. from uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls all the way to the Masoretic Text, how, how well are they copying those scrolls, John?
2: Yeah, real well. Okay. So, so, unlike the New Testament, which we kind of had a lot of rogue scribes, you know, uh-huh. copying, the Old Testament is copied probably primarily in the temple, or at All least right. in the palace. So we can think about more of a centralized location for where Israel's holy books were being copied, mm-hmm. okay? Um, that, I think, gives uh, a strong conservatism in terms of copying. That I don't want to make it sound like it's uniform, but that, I think, original centralized location... Really sets up the transmission of the Hebrew Bible to be quite conservative and to be quite preserved. Okay, so but, but yeah, go ahead. No, yeah. no complete your thought. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, so then with that in the background, then you look at Qumran mm-hmm. and you do see a number of those copies as reflecting a very conservative tendency in copying, but not all of them are copied that way. And that's something we probably should discuss further here. Yeah, but, how
1: yeah. do? Uh, uh, in the New Testament, as Peter was talking about earlier, we compare the manuscripts and we can reconstruct the original. There's only a, a couple of major places: yeah. end of Mark, yeah, maybe the woman caught in adultery, yeah. Those are should they be there? Should they not be there? Yeah. What What's the situation with the Old Testament? In yeah, that
2: regard? yeah, great, yeah. So there, there's there's a number of them. All right. Um, Let's start with, say, the David and Goliath narrative. Okay. So if you compare the Greek translation, the Septuagint, uh-huh. with what we have in the Masoretic text, mm-hmm. there's 20 verses missing from sec- from 1 Samuel 17. For, on which side? Where are they on, missing from? On the Greek side. The Greek we, side. We have them in the Masoretic text, which is the later scribal tradition, right, okay. of, Bible, of the yeah. Hebrew Bible. So, so therefore, they're in our English translations, because we typically translate the Masoretic text. Right. But it's, there's a second biographical introduction to David. There was one in chapter 16, and then there's a second one in 17 mm-hmm. that some Hebrew scribe somewhere, it's not an accident because it's so long. Mm-hmm. You can't explain it due to like an accidental skip of the eye or mm-hmm. something. Uh, so, so, so most scholars just think, well, there's an abbreviated account, you see, that was out there, that mm-hmm. was copied. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was either longer and got shorter, or mm-hmm. shorter and got longer, and scholars continue to debate which is the more probable. So, which do we
1: take in our Bibles? We're going to go with the Masoretic yeah. text and the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation from the
2: Hebrew. Yes, that's but, right.
1: But uh, 1,200 years earlier.
2: Yes, that's right. And so, the uh, manuscripts are earlier. Yeah. And so, those manuscripts reflect a shorter text to the David and Goliath story. Okay. Yeah, that's right. All right. Yeah. So, there's that one. But, but let's take a look at a smaller example. Well, let me, let me ask oh, you yeah, that. one yeah. thing about that, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are the differences
1: in the accounts and is it theologically significant? No, no. Okay, no. No, no, okay. no, no.
2: Thankful thanks thanks for that. Okay. It's just that there's um you know in in good Hebrew writing there's good repetition, you know. Okay. And and there was there's two introductions. They're not identical, but David is actually introduced twice in chapter 6 once in 16 and once in chapter 17. Uh like a lot of the background of his family and all of that is just sort of rehashed. Now, is, it, is it possible
1: that there's some kind of emphasis there, like a chiasm or something? Yeah, or? I, don't,
2: I, I don't know about a chiasm, but yeah, yeah. there's definitely some details in there that right. make the narrative go. Yeah, that's right. Explain
1: that. I, I call it chiasm, maybe you're, you're pronouncing it right, chiasm. What, what Ch- is that?
2: Yeah, well, chiasm is just, uh, it's, it's a, it comes from the Greek letter chi, right? Yeah. It forms like an X, right. you know? So so you should have uh, repetitions, right, on the outside, say an A and an A prime, mm. and then a B and a B prime. You should have correspondence. Right mm-hmm. in the narratives, yeah, there's maybe some of that mm-hmm. in David and Goliath, and the center is supposed to be important, but I don't know if I see a chiasm there necessarily. Yeah, the very
1: center, like I, I know there's one in the Noah story, uh, that, where uh, there's kind of a a point in the middle of the story, it says, and God remembered Noah, yeah, that's right, right? that's right, and and, and yep. so it's hard to describe this on radio, yeah, <laughs> but, that's, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's but <laughs> right. It,
0: you're 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 you're, you're
1: narrating something to where you get to the center and God remembered Noah, mm-hmm. and
2: then it goes yeah, it, it right. away from it yeah. in the same manner. That's right. Yeah, yeah. scholars debate the merits of these, they, uh-huh. but, but they do oftentimes see ver- see legitimacy to these chiasms. Yeah.
1: So are there uh, other important additions or subtractions from the Old Testament that we need to be aware of? Yeah,
2: additions and subtractions. So one we mentioned in the book um, actually comes from a Dead Sea Scroll. Uh, affectionately known as 4Q Deuteronomy N. So so these are labeled, right? This this scroll was found in the fourth cave at the site at Qumran on the northwest side of the Dead Sea. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's a scroll of Deuteronomy, and N separates it from all the other scrolls of Deuteronomy found in the same cave. This happens to be a a scroll of the Decalogue. Okay, Mm -hmm. so you think... Oh, wait, who's tampering with the Decalogue? Right, right, right. right, Well, it turns out that this is this was an ex, what we call an excerpted scroll. They they took the content of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy five and six, which has mm-hmm. the Decalogue and the mm-hmm. Shema, right in chapter six. Mm-hmm. They actually introduce it with the promises uh, of blessing for obedience in Deuteronomy eight. Mm-hmm. So they actually moved. Later material to the beginning. Mm. This must be liturgical. It's mm. like, scholars don't know exactly why this was done, but it mm. had to have a liturgical function. So Deuteronomy 8 has all these promises for, for and of blessing for obedience when they walk into the land, you know. Mm-hmm. And then obedience to what? Well, logically, it would be the Ten Commandments. Mm. Okay. So then it goes on to give a fairly accurate copy of the Ten Commandments. This mm. is like first century B.C., before okay. the time of Jesus. All right. And except it comes to the Sabbath commandment. Mm-hmm. And of course it has the, the, the command in Deuteronomy, right? Uh, keep the Sabbath day holy, right? Or remember the Sabbath, I think is, de- is due to the Deuteronomic version. But then, you know how there's two different rationales for keeping the Sabbath? In Exodus 20, it's for the Lord God created the heavens and the earth, right? In six days, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. rested on the seventh day. Right. But then in Deuteronomy... It's the, uh, it's the, um, it's because the Lord God redeemed you out of Egypt and he's bringing you into this land, Mm. therefore keep the Sabbath day holy, right? Mm. Well, it turns out the scribe wanted to harmonize the two different reasons for keeping the Sabbath. So, so in the midst of a Deuteronomy text, Exodus 20 verse 11, which is that rationale for, from creation, Mm -hmm. it winds up right in the in the text, okay, so he's he's trying to rationalize it there, but we can see that we can right? see it, yeah, yeah. okay, in, yeah,
1: that's right. So overall, when you look at the Old Testament, how sure are we when we're reading our English translations of the Old Testament? Yeah, are there places like the end of Mark that we have to be concerned about or not? Yes. are we pretty sure? Yeah, te-
2: uh, let's let's just be honest, Frank. Mm-hmm. Uh, text critics are working through big problems here. Mm-hmm. When you compare Greek Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. with Hebrew Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Um, Greek Jeremiah is about one-seventh, one-sixth shorter. Okay. And because of some of the Dead Sea Scroll 11, it's 4Q Jeremiah B, mm-hmm. some think there was a shorter Hebrew text mm-hmm. that the translator, that the Greek translator was using. Mm-hmm. The jury's still out, though. But I don't I don't think this is a chance for despair because, again, it's not theology, theological material necessarily. But it does show that there were different modes of copying. And I think it wasn't just letter for letter. There was definitely some augmenting or, or, um, uh, bridging going okay. on okay so so that's one that I think most of our listeners probably aren't aware of alright hold the thought we're going to come back to it right after the break yeah we, we, we got to figure out what's going on here so don't go anywhere you're listening <laughs> to I
1: Don't Have Enough Faith to be an Atheist with me Frank Turk my guest is Dr. John Mead his book is Scribes and Scriptures and it's brand new and we're talking about the Old Testament manuscripts right now And we come back we'll also talk about how we know what books should be in the Bible don't go anywhere Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. We're talking to Dr. John Mead, his book, Scribes and Scriptures. And, John, we're talking about uh, some issues in the Old Testament where you're saying certain manuscripts uh, of Jeremiah are shorter than others. So how do we discover what was in the original? That's really what we're
2: trying to get at. Yeah, yeah. So, again, same process. Text critics are going to continue to compare uh, all the evidence, uh and and they're going to continue to ask, what's more probable? Is it... Is it that a scribe abridged a text mm-hmm. or augmented a text? Mm-hmm. But but right now, Frank, it's it's just so up in the air. Like uh-huh. uh, scholars, are... Yeah, scholars, yeah. But I will say though, it's just over little things like this. You know, if when you're reading Jeremiah or any prophet, there's there's historical notices like the the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah right. on X day in X year under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar or whatever, right? those are the kinds of things that weren't in the shorter edition and they were, they seem to have been added Mm. into the later edition. Mm. Okay. So, so we're not talking about um, you know, the attributes of God here. So it, it, it's yeah. it's not a lot of
1: theological No,
2: no, we're talking about, here. no, it's yeah. a lot of times it's or the, ambiguity. Yeah, a lot yeah. of times it's just sort of contextualizing right. the oracle when it came to the prophet. Okay, yeah. all right, good.
1: Yeah. Uh, there's a lot much more in the book. So yes. if you want to dive further into that, ladies and gentlemen, we get to it, Scribes and Scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. Amen. Um, let's spend some more time on canonization. I know a lot of people have questions about that. So how do we know that—let's start with the New Testament. How do we know the 27 books of the New Testament that we have today were the ones that God really did inspire, and books haven't been left out, or, or books that are in there
2: shouldn't be in there? Yeah. Amen. This is yeah. a big question. So let's start with the New Testament. Yeah. By starting with the Old, just real quick. Okay. There was an Old Testament canon. Yes. The Jews had a canon. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, canonicity wasn't a new concept for Christians. Right. Okay. They knew that there would be a, a list of books, uh, or uh, an authority, mm-hmm. okay, of God's Word. So, mm-hmm. so canon was a... Um, a concept already. The word means standard, right? Or yeah, yeah, and list stick. even. When it comes yeah. to mean list. Right. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Now, a book on the list was a yeah. part of the canon of authoritative scripture, uh-huh. that's right. So, so the New Testament, uh, there were lots of other early writings, but but one criterion seems to dominate everything else: was the book written by an apostle mm-hmm. or some associate of an mm-hmm. apostle, like Luke, like Luke, yeah? yeah. Or yeah. we think of the Gospel according to Mark, right? And yet the earliest Christian tradition has Mark tagging along with Peter, yes, right, all the time. Okay, um, or a book like Hebrews, which is totally anonymous, mm-hmm. and yet in chapter two he identifies himself, it seems, with uh, a grouping of the in, amongst the apostles, even mm-hmm. maybe second generation, but mm-hmm. but definitely tied to the apostles. Yeah, okay. so uh, where do we get this criterion mm-hmm. from? I, a skeptic might say, well, that's great. The modern, modern uh, canon scholars have just made this stuff up. Well, no. If you go back to the ancient document known as the Muratorian Fragment, mm-hmm. and by the second, third, or fourth, but some probably third century, they're already saying that a popular Christian work, like the Shepherd of Hermas, mm-hmm. like this book, this this book has 20 plus manuscripts behind it, Frank. Mm. Like it's got it's got more manuscripts for the shepherd than say the gospel according to Mark. Mm. I mean, it's a very popular work. And yet that document says that it was written in our times. Mm. That is, it was written in the second, third century, right, right. <laughs> and, and therefore can't be uh, brought, uh, linked back to an apostle. Mm. And so it wasn't fit then for public reading in the church like the canonical books were, you see. So, so that criterion of apostolic authorship was huge for mm. New Testament mm. canonicity. A common misnomer is that the Council of Nicaea established the canon. What's the truth about that? Yeah, so there's in in history there's no record at all that the Council of Nicaea ever made a declaration on the canon. So, so and and Christians disagreed before and after 325 Mm -hmm. AD. Mm -hmm. So showing there was not some top down Mm -hmm. uh, decree Mm -hmm. of what the canon should be. So, so really what we're what we're looking at is early statements from Christians talking about groupings like Irenaeus in 180 AD saying Mm -hmm. there could only ever be four gospels, Mm -hmm. you see. So we have a four gospel canon Mm -hmm. super early. Mm -hmm. Uh, By 200, Tertullian is taking Marcion to task. He's saying, no, Marcion hasn't just corrupted the text of Paul's letters. Marcion's even corrupted the number of the epistles because he took the 13 down to 10. He omitted the pastoral epistles. And he took
1: the four gospels to one, right? Yes, and he did that to too. tried to combine yes. them all. Yes, yeah. he did
2: that too. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And there were other gospels written, mm-hmm. but, but early on, there's a tradition of four. Mm-hmm. Uh, we point this out in the book, Origen, just a little bit later than Irenaeus says, look, the gospel, according to Luke, says that, that numerous people tried to write gospels. Mm-hmm. Remember? There were no, yeah, a number yeah, of yeah, accounts, yeah. That, or a number of attempts to be right. to, to write a gospel. And Origen says we've read them all. <laughs> Lest someone thinks he knows something, Frank. Mm-hmm, that's what mm-hmm. Origen says. Mm-hmm. Lest someone thinks he knows something. We had to make sure that we knew everything. And that's and I thought it's a fascinating example we, of how we should approach it today. Yeah, we have yeah. in our book, I Don't Have a Faith
1: to Be an Atheist. I, I, I'm i doing this from memory. I thought that 25 of the 27 books were quoted as authoritative early in the second century. Many now, of them are. Yeah, now, now, now this isn't definitive, but right. when was it finally... Acknowledge that the 27 were in. Now, now, yeah. keep, keep in mind that Christianity was basically illegal until about 311 A.D. So yes, yes. it's not like you're going to have right. a, a Bible conference yeah. and decide all yep. this or discover yep. all this. But yep. when was it the first official pronouncement? The, the say? first
2: the first list of books uh-huh. now goes back to origin of Alexandria around 240 A.D. Okay. So that's not in your New Testament Textbooks like that's that, but, but it is Mm -hmm. where scholarship is at. Mm -hmm. Origin is the first to record the 26 or there's a little debate about whether the manuscripts contain revelation in his, in this text. Okay. But, but barring that it seems like origin, not Athanasius over a century later, origin in the third century is the first to list the entire 27 book, new Testament canon.
1: So it had to be written by an apostle or someone who knew an apostle. It had to, uh, Obviously be something that wouldn't contradict previous revelation. That's right. Had to be orthodox. Right. right. Had to be orthodox. And the gospels that we hear about from the so-called Da Vinci Code were not written. They were not written in the first century, written in the second century. Yeah, they're written later. Uh The
2: the manuscript evidence for them, of course, is quite weak. Okay. Um, And like I said, early Christians knew about these. They read about them. So sometimes today we present these as the lost Bible. Mm-hmm. You heard about this? Yeah, you know, sure, the the yeah. lost Bible. Yeah. Well, and it, it's like the, these books that Christians didn't want, early Christians didn't want you to know about or something <laughs> like this. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We've the, read them all. Yeah, yeah, we've read them all. We know <laughs> but, them. About. I'm going to list uh-huh. them all right here for uh-huh. you. So anyways, I I think, yeah, they, they were written. I do think they are called, I mean, they are labeled apocrypha mm-hmm. in that sense. Uh, these were hidden gospels, only like individual communities might use them, whereas the canonical books mm-hmm. were books used by, by all Christians everywhere. And the Gospel of Thomas wasn't written by Thomas,
1: he had been dead for
2: 100 years, Correct. right? They just Correct. put his name on it. Yeah, these are pseudop- what we call pseudepigraphical. No, we've just got
1: a few minutes left, five or so minutes, and it, yes. I know it's a big topic, but I do wanna cover just briefly. Why do we as Protestants believe our Old Testament is the true Old Testament and not say the Catholic version which adds yeah. several other
2: books? Yeah. So so two two myths. Yeah. That say the Catholic Bible was was published once and for all at the Council of Trent, yeah. 1546. Uh-huh. That's one misnomer. Okay. And then another misguided thing obviously is that the Protestants took took books out of the Bible. All right, all right. Let's clear that away. All right. Both traditions go way back to the okay. patristic period. All right. Uh, just as, just cuz we have a limited amount of time, snapshot. Right. Augustine, right? Yeah. The church father. He's the first to list all of the the catholic uh, the the canon of the catholics today. Mm-hmm. So he lists the the traditional Hebrew canonical books, right. but then he adds Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, Ben Sirah or Ecclesiasticus right. is sometimes called, and 1st and 2nd Maccabees. He okay. just integrates those books in his canon. All right. But his, his, um, his... Uh, but why would he integrate those if the Jews didn't have them in their canon? No, because he, because, okay, great question. Augustine was working with a different criterion. He did not think the synagogue should establish the church's canon. He thinks the church hmm. should establish the church's canon. Even even if it's talking
1: about Jewish events in in Old Testament times, like 1st First, First and 2nd Maccabees? Yes, that's right. Huh.
2: Yeah, so he's not going back. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So he he just thinks, well, churches are reading these books. Church churches are gaining from these books. Why not why not add them into the canon? Okay. Jerome though, on the other hand, is Augustine's counter yeah. uh, counterpart, yeah. Jerome says, no, 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 the church has always stuck with the Jewish canon and therefore it never has included those six books. Okay. Rather, those six books are for edification, Jerome said, but Mm. not to establish points of doctrine or points Mm. of the faith. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, So from the fourth century, we have actually these two streams running like this. And it's not finally settled until Trent says... This is the canon list, which includes the extra books. So by
1: the time you get to the Council of Trent in about 1545 AD, Mm -hmm. in response to Luther, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, this is the first time the Roman Catholic Church has officially said these books are in the Old Testament. This was a complete... Uh, announcement. It wasn't uh, just by say Augustine, right. uh, You no, know, eleven 1, right. hundred years yeah, earlier. That's right.
2: That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. But there was precedent. Okay. I guess that's my point. Trent all had right. precedent. All right. Yes. Okay. But Catholic scholars like Erasmus, Cardinal Cajetan, Cardinal Hemenes, all before Trent. So before that decree of Trent, they they simply kept advocating for the the narrower canon of Jerome. So, so Cardinal Cajetan, who reviews Martin Luther's doctrine in 1518 at the Diet of Augsburg, he, he would actually be anathema, according to Trent. So he would be with Luther. Yeah, but he's with Luther on the canon. That's okay. right. So he stays in the Catholic Church, but he's with Luther on with,
1: the canon. W- because it's
2: all before Trent. After It's after Trent that the positions become hardened and solidified.
1: Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, well, I know you guys probably want to hear more about this. If you want to hear more about this, we're going to have a little after show with uh, Dr. John Mead. Uh, but you need to join the cross-examined community in order to do that. Uh, that's a place where you can go and not, be, not have fear of being doxed, outed, (laughs) or uh, beat up on by a troll because it's a private community behind a a nominal paywall where uh, our entire team is back there uh, interacting with you and we also put special content that you can't get anywhere else We're going to continue this conversation with dr. John Mead uh, right after uh, we're done here and you can see it on the cross-examined community you'll have to go there to see it don't don't forget friends uh, we will be here next week and don't forget those of you listening on radio we have a bonus podcast on I don't have enough faith to be an atheist It comes out on Tuesday you're not going to hear it on the radio you've got to go wherever you get podcasts and uh, listen to it there. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, and thanks for putting positive reviews wherever you listen to podcasts. We will see you here next week. Lord willing, God bless.